Disc 9. To stay in this race, Britain would need Polaris instead. Impossible to trace underwater, the submarines carrying them could cruise the oceans for months. Each submarine sailed with 16 missiles. Each missile, once launched, could not be stopped. Each carried more destructive force than all the bombs dropped in the Second World War. Polaris was the ultimate doomsday fish. Thanks to Macmillan's deal at Camp David, the first American version arrived a short drive away from Glasgow. Macmillan originally talked to Eisenhower only about some base in Scottish waters, though sites in England and Wales were also considered. He had been nervous from the start, noting in his diary that a picture could well be drawn of some frightful accident which might devastate the whole of Scotland. The U.S. Navy, however, searching for suitable sites, rejected the Northwest Highlands as too remote. They fixed on the Holy Loch, a steep-sided inlet close to Glasgow. It had deep water. It was easy for navigation, quiet, and yet submarines would quickly be able to hide themselves in the heavy marine traffic leaving and entering the Clyde. It was also close to Scotland's only international airport, Prestwick, which would be handy for American sailors. Macmillan became increasingly alarmed at the promise he had made, writing to Eisenhower that it would surely be a mistake to put down what would become a major nuclear target so near to the third largest and most overcrowded city in this country. As soon as the announcement was made, Malinovsky, the Soviet defence minister, would threaten to aim his rockets at Glasgow, and there would not only be the usual agitation of the defeatists and the pacifists, but also genuine apprehension among ordinary folk. Eisenhower was blandly dismissive. They had discussed merely a Scottish base, had they not? The details would be worked out by naval people, but that was the trouble. The Royal Navy was desperate to get its hands on Polaris. Its status was crucially affected. If it became the nuclear delivery system, then after decades of air power supremacy, the Navy would finally edge ahead of the RAF as the most important as well as the senior service. So, the naval lobbyists were adamant that Macmillan must be accommodating about the Holy Loch. Macmillan was impaled. The same went for a government suggestion that the U.S. Navy might agree to joint control over the American missiles stationed in Scotland. Again, this was vetoed. Again, the Navy was with the Americans. Macmillan buckled and allowed the deal to stand. The now inaptly named Holy Loch would welcome America's nuclear submarine fleet. When the first U.S. nuclear supply ship arrived in the Clyde, the captain faced a tiny demonstration by Scottish CND members in canoes and kayaks, which he dismissed as the protest of a few damned Eskimos. Both his ship, the Proteus, and the first nuclear submarines into the Clyde were targeted by protesters who managed to hold on to the bows of the supply ship, climb its side, and generally win a little publicity. There was a demonstration in Glasgow and marches to the gates of the new U.S. base, but CND's plan for a blockade by dinghy and canoe was defeated by rain, choppy waters, and energetic policing by local bobbies. A few years later, Macmillan did a further deal, this time with the new U.S. President, John F. Kennedy, and the Royal Navy duly got its own Polaris fleet. Britain would build the submarines at Barrow and Furness and Birkenhead, including the nuclear power systems, and would produce her own nuclear warheads. But America would supply the Polaris missiles themselves. 
Work started in 1963 on a new British nuclear submarine base at Faslane, just along the coast from the Holy Loch, the first new naval base since 1909. It had become perfectly obvious after the Cuban Missile Crisis that if Armageddon happened, it would have been triggered by some miscalculation or accident involving the U.S. or the U.S.S.R. Every other nation, nuclear or not, would be a mere observer. And if the independent deterrence was not independent, and far from giving Britain leverage, made her a supplicant, why did Britain press on? The mixed motives of Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume included a whiff of the old Churchillian fantasy about great power status. There was also a vague sense that the Western alliance should include more than just one nuclear power. Russia was a real threat, and if deterrence worked, then Britain needed it as much as anyone. With a large British army of the Rhine and this country the first in line for any preemptive Soviet missile strike, there was a remarkably wide political consensus on the need for submarines and missiles, with the Union Jack on top. Polling and voting shows that most of the time a large majority of voters agreed with this, despite the campaigns of the disarmers. Labour never went anti-nuclear, even though so many of its supporters were so passionately committed to CND. By the early 60s, Britain was essentially in the same global rictus that she would adopt until the end of the Cold War. Once she had stomped the globe, imposing her will on subject peoples. Now she was stoically preparing for her own destruction, burrowing deep and buying the wherewithal for a final act of retaliation. She was sloughing off the age of empire, until only a few scattered dots would remain. She was America's unsinkable carrier and ally, not an independent European power. Her main commitment was to the fight against communism, and on it she was spending proportionately more money than any comparable country. This required a great rearrangement of the mental furniture, but it was rearranged by both main parties. They all struggled with it. In the Attlee years, it had been the struggle for financial survival and to achieve an independent British bomb. In the Sunset Churchill administration, it was his forlorn attempt to make peace between the Americans and Russians. Eden suffered the disillusioning smash of Suez, and Macmillan came to terms with the Americans finding that even the smallest expressions of independence, as over the Holy Loch, were brushed aside. All through these years, with steadily shrinking armed forces, Britain had been fighting somebody somewhere. Any British citizen reviewing life in these islands since 1945 would conclude that they have enjoyed one of the longest periods of peace ever. Yet, from outside and in secret corners, the story had been very different. Fighters then, fighters now. Small Worlds Collide how might one sum up the love-hate relationship between the British establishment and their allies in Washington at the height of the Cold War? What metaphor might you choose? They were like competitive gamblers trying to outwit the wicked Soviets, yet constantly wary of one another. The self-assured Englishman who moves between the world of espionage and high society is out there taking the risks, but he simply doesn't have the cash to keep playing. The Americans, whom he treats with a mixture of condescension and admiration, are watching half-contemptuously, ready to help at the last minute. The British agent is cultured, well-educated and stylish, 
but fated to be the junior partner. He is prickly about his politics. Obsessively he defends his country's underlying greatness, despite the appearance of weakness. For one to the manner born, it is a kind of torture, and he ends up naked, with his testicles hanging out of the bottom of a cane chair, having them beaten. A nasty but undeniably powerful image of the humiliation of British power. All this comes, of course, from the first ever James Bond novel, Casino Royale, published in 1953. Its author was, in his way, at least as influential a commentator on the Anglo-American relationship as most politicians. Ian Fleming is also a fine example of how British society was tightly twisted at the top. He was yet another Etonian, and yet another character who flitted between journalism, intelligence, and high society. Of a Scottish banking family, he had tried Sandhurst, foreign reporting, including in Stalin's Moscow, and the city, where he was no good, before joining naval intelligence during the war. There, his wild schemes for sabotage and dirty tricks were widely considered more fit for novels. After the war, he ran a network of foreign correspondents from London, and, like so many other Britons, tried to work out ways of moving out of the dreary reality of austerity London. He eventually built a house in Jamaica, then a British colony, which he called Goldeneye. It turns out to be Ian Fleming's wife Anne, admired by her friends for her sharpness, determination, and lack of pretense, who really gives us the feel of how interconnected politics and society life were in the 1950s. Anne had originally been married to a newspaper magnate, Esmond Rothermere, owner of the Daily Mail and London Evening Standard. She had had a high old time in the years after the war, living like an old-fashioned society hostess, while making and unmaking editors and journalistic careers, it was one of her protégés who broke the story of Princess Elizabeth's engagement to Philip Mountbatten. But she had been enjoying a long affair with Fleming, and eventually divorced the devastated Lord Rothermere to marry him, taking off in new directions, politically and sexually. She was a close friend of Eden's wife, Clarissa, who had in turn been loved by the novelist Evelyn Waugh, a friend of Anne's. The latter two were great letter-writers which is how we can picture Clarissa Eden, in number 10, practising with a snorkel, for it was to Ian Fleming's golden eye that the Edens fled after Suez to recuperate. Anne was dubious about the idea, writing to war in November 1956, that the Prime Minister's wife seemed disconcerted to hear that if one wished a bath, one had to give two days' notice, and that I did not know if there was a dentist on the island, and that all the doctors were black. I warned her that shoes must be worn while bathing, and that the reef abounded with scorpionfish, barracuda, and urchins. I forgot to tell her that if Eden is impregnated with spines, he should pee on them. I think Torquay and a sun lamp would be more peaceful and patriotic. The governor of Jamaica was equally concerned, but the Edens, like Noel Coward and many others, did make for the island, and the Fleming's exotic home. When wounded, you stick with your own, and these were tight little circles. Ian and Anne Fleming had originally heard about Burgess and Maclean's defection to Moscow, for instance, while staying with the Edens at Chequers. The memory stayed with them, defending the honour of the British Secret Service at a time when it was stained by treachery was one of Fleming's purposes in his novels. 
It was not only the worlds of newspapers, Tory politics and writing that Anne Fleming pulled together. A few years after the Edens had visited, she was describing another politician on the island, someone who had become one of her favourite dance partners and lovers. She paints a vivid portrait of the Labour leader Hugh Gateskill, swimming, then disappearing underwater for a worryingly long time, before breaking surface like an amiable hippo. In her letters to friends, she was discreet about her love affair with Gateskill, though the affectionate animal metaphors slightly give the game away. Later, he is a very inquisitive man. He has a long, inquisitive nose, like the ant-eating tapir. Gateskill was one of the upper-crust socialists, distrusted by the Labour left. Even so, for such a Tory hostess to have an affair with him would have horrified her friends. It only matters because it shows how small and tight-woven the top of British society still was. You should have seen. Everybody, darling, was there. The history of Britain in the fifties is the history of unconscious conspiracies. The private language of upper-crust diaries and letters is mocking but nervous. The London drinking clubs remain from pre-war times, but the grand houses are shutting down, and the Americans are taking over. In different ways, all these people, from Noel Coward to the newspaper barons, Gateskill to the Flemings, are struggling with time-warp lives and challenged patriotism. Morals are becoming more fluid. New kinds of pleasure are seeping in. One of his biographers wrote of the Labour leader, Britain was changing, growing more affluent, beginning to enjoy the peace, and Gateskill relaxed a little alongside everyone else. Gateskill himself, meanwhile, was able to appreciate both Flemings, writing of the Bond books in the New Statesman that, I am a confirmed Fleming fan, or should it be addict, the combination of sex, violence, alcohol, and, at intervals, good food and nice clothes, is, to one who lives such a circumscribed life as I do, irresistible. It is hard to think of a couple of sentences which explain so well how the austerity years gave way to the swinging sixties. Gateskill was one of the most intensely patriotic men in British public life, deeply wary of America, yet he was being tugged that way too. James Bond would become one of the most successful, if mildly ironic, symbols of defiant British pride as the years rolled on, not least through the endless films. Gadget-packed Aston Martins, imperturbable and apparently competent Whitehall mandarins, parachutes opening to display the Union Jack, and, above all, Bond himself, with his self-confidence in everything from cocktails and sex to scuba diving and skiing. This was truly a glorious fantasy for a nation in trouble. The Americans were shown as friendly and powerful, but slightly slow on the uptake, while in the early novels Fleming worked to satisfy the almost pornographic lust of the British for the richer, more colourful consumer culture over the Atlantic, Gateskill's wistful, good food and nice clothes. American cigarettes... Nylon shirts and food are indeed lovingly described. In a characteristic passage from Live and Let Die, Bond leaves a bitter raw day, the dreary half-light of a London fog, to go to New York, where his hotel serves him crabs and tartar sauce, flat beef hamburgers, medium rare, from the charcoal grill, French fried potatoes, broccoli, mixed salad with Thousand Island dressing, 
ice cream with melted butterscotch, and Liebfrau milch wine. That a burger and chips with blue nun menu, which would soon become common in suburban lounge bars across Britain, clearly seems so mouth-wateringly exotic in 1954, is eloquent and, in its way, touching. Though Fleming was a connected member of the elite, Bond's route to a mass audience would be through rougher trade. Fleming had pictured his agent as an old Etonian, but. A working-class Scottish bodybuilder and former milkman, Sean Connery, was chosen to play the first James Bond, and he was followed by a range of shapes and accents, including an Irishman. This appeared to suggest that Bond was something of an outsider, which in turn expanded the film's appeal. In a further twist, the films were only ever made because of the financial backing of America's United Artists and the ex-Hollywood producer Albert or Cubby Broccoli. He had been working in London, as had his Bond partner, a Canadian called Harry Saltzman, whose earlier work included films of grittier subjects such as John Osborne's Look Back in Anger. James Bond would pay rather better. Was it all a bit too much? Not really. The political scandal that happened at the fag end of the Tory years was more highly coloured and more unlikely than much of what Ian Fleming poured into his early shockers. This tall tale began on a hot summer evening around the swimming pool of a grand house, Cliveden, in Buckinghamshire. Now a hotel for the very rich, the Italianate mansion overlooking the Thames, in one of the finest locations in southern England, had once belonged to the Duke of Westminster. Its architecture has an exuberant opulence that makes you laugh out loud even now, and its original style can be summarized by the fact that it contained a dining room taken wholesale from the French palace of Madame de Pompadour. Cliveden was already notorious as a place of cliques and plotters. It had been the home of the first Lord Astor, a newspaper magnate, and his famous wife, politician, and hostess, Nancy, a woman who could have given Anne Fleming a run for her money. Before the war, Nancy Astor's gatherings had been attacked by the left-wing journalist Claude Coburn as the very epicenter of pro-appeasement thinking. At Cliveden, Coburn insisted, Lords Halifax and Lothian and the pro-appeasement Times editor Geoffrey Dawson gathered with the Astors to undermine Eden and Churchill and plot a deal with Hitler. The evidence of actual plotting at Cliveden is scanty. But the Communist Party took up the story of an upper-class conspiracy involving highly placed Americans and members of the royal family ready to sell out democracy to the Nazis. Soon, the Cliveden set was being talked about from Berlin to Washington. Nancy Astor, then an MP, complained that she was portrayed as the centre of a vicious and degenerate gang, and received letters saying that she and her family should be taken out and shot. When she eventually confronted Coburn at a party, she spat in his face. Remarkably, political lightning now struck the same house again. Clifton, or rather its swimming pool, helped finish off Tory reputations a generation later. The next Lord Astor, known as Bill, was trying to live a relatively apolitical and social life. Amiable, thrice married, he was turning Clifton again into a party palace, where well-off and eminent guests enjoyed themselves. One of his friends was a slightly sinister osteopath of extreme left-wing affectations, rather than views, called Stephen Ward. He had massaged the backs of Winston Churchill, Gateskill, many royals, and Elizabeth Taylor. It was said of him that 
He enjoyed handling people's lives as he enjoyed handling their dislocated limbs or damaged muscles. Ward, also a talented artist, kept a collection of pretty young girls whose careers he vaguely promoted in the modelling and sex business. One was called Christine Keeler. She had run away to London from her railway carriage home at the age of fifteen and lived a wild teenage youth afterwards. On the night in question, she was staying with Ward and two others at a grand, vaguely Germanic cottage in the Cliveden grounds. Astor allowed Ward and his guests to use his swimming pool. On the muggy evening, Keeler shared a borrowed bathing costume and was naked in the pool when Astor wandered down with one of his guests, the Secretary of State for War, John Profumo. Handsome, flirtatious, Profumo had had a good war in a cavalry regiment and was married to a then-famous actress, Valerie Hobson. The only obviously exotic thing about him was his name, which came from an aristocratic Italian grandfather. But hot summer nights are hot summer nights. The men chased Keeler around the pool, and later invited her and Ward back to the main house, where Keeler and Profumo began to flirt. He contacted her later, and they were soon having an affair. This would probably have remained unknown in the discreet codes of the time, except for a rotund, cheerful Russian military attaché and spy called Yevgeny Ivanov. Ward knew him too, Ward knew everybody, because he had been introduced to Ivanov by the editor of the Daily Telegraph, who else, at lunch in the exclusive Garrick Club, where else, Ivanov also wanted to hire a cottage at Cliveden, which might have struck others as being a tad suspicious. He met Profumo at the pool, too. The two men were soon engaged in a childish swimming race. A couple of years later, neatly completing the circle, Ivanov was sleeping with Keeler. This tangled connection of minister, spy, call girl, peer and masseur might not have hit the headlines at all, except that among Keeler's other men was a West Indian dope dealer who was accused of firing a gun at Ward's flat. During his trial, rumours started to spread. Keeler became a minor celebrity. There was the famous photograph, attributed by many to David Bailey, of her sitting naked as she looked back from a trendy Arne Jacobson chair. In this story, nothing should be taken at face value. The photographer was Lewis Morley, the chair was a copy and Keeler was not naked, just cleverly posed. Private Eye printed a knowing cartoon and article, though in fact the cartoonists and writers were largely using guesswork. Keeler had been hanging round the same crowd as the satirists, and her connections were widely known in London. The Private Eye story so alarmed Stephen Ward, however, that he turned up at the magazine's grimy Soho offices and confirmed the lot. Political London is a village, and soon the story was raised in the Commons by George Whig, an unpleasant ex-army Labour MP and friend of Harold Wilson's, who happened to loathe Profumo. The panicking minister was hauled in and interrogated late at night by the government whips. He hotly denied that he had had sex with Keeler, a lie he then repeated to the Commons. The Prime Minister, like the rest of the Tory hierarchy, believed him. Jack Profumo was tormented by what he had done. As the Labour opposition leader, Harold Wilson, sent Macmillan further lurid allegations that Ward had tried to get nuclear secrets from Profumo, using Keeler and pillow talk, the minister fled on holiday to Italy.
He there admitted the truth to his wife and returned to make a public confession. He was instantly ruined, spent the rest of his life in private voluntary work in London, atoning for what he had done, and ended his life widely respected and officially honoured for his charity work. But you never escape a name that memorable. More than forty years on, newspaper billboards announced, Sex Scandal Minister Dies. Back in 1963, the press was in particularly vengeful mood. During his trial for living off the earnings of prostitution, Ward killed himself with an overdose. In the most famous words uttered as the tale unfolded, Mandy Rice Davis, Keeler's friend, was asked in court about Lord Astor's denial that he had had sex with her. She replied, he would say that, wouldn't he? The frankness of her assumption that, yes, of course, rich and powerful men were liars, caught the nation's mood. Most such scandals simply end. The headlines yellow, the victims limp off to try to rebuild their lives, and politics thunders on as usual. The Profumo affair was different. There was a famous inquiry into it by the judge Lord Denning. His report was a bestseller when published by the government, rivaling the beverage report of twenty years earlier. The different subjects and tone tell us something about Britain's journey. Denning cleared MI5 of failure, minimized any security aspect, and concluded that Ivanov and Profumo were not sharing Keeler's bed. Yet, very shortly afterwards, in a very tight race, Labour would win the 1964 general election by just four seats. It is a tiny margin. The Profumo affair caused such national interest that it might well have tipped the balance against the Tories. If so, it was a vote against a closed world of interconnecting relationships from which too many British people felt excluded. Macmillan himself had led a blameless, indeed celibate, life in late adulthood after his wife's long affair with a fellow politician, Bob Boothby. But the tight connections between a small number of powerful political and social players were particularly intense in the fifties, before the democratising effect of the sixties' educational and cultural revolution. The Profumo affair brought both worlds together in collision. Astor and Profumo, the mistresses and the discreet introductions in London clubs, all came from the old world. The drug-smuggling boyfriend with a gun and the good-time girls from working-class backgrounds, unshockable and impossible to intimidate, were characters from the new Britain taking shape around Macmillan. Universes collided. Energy was released. Its noise was heard as the satire boom. Beyond the Fringe Political satire, which had been exuberantly popular in Georgian times, had become duller during the noontide of empire, and now returned in full force, from savage cartoons in the newspapers, staged lampoons, and the fortnightly mockery of the magazine Private Eye. It can be tempting to treat comedy like a ball being passed down the line in a game of rugby. Among the two million regular listeners to The Goon Show in the mid-fifties were key members of the next generation of comics who would sting more, men such as Jonathan Miller and Peter Cook. The Goons pass to Beyond the Fringe. Beyond the Fringe passes to Monty Python's Flying Circus. They pass to Little Britain and so on until the touch judge puts a flag up and stops play. Each generation does indeed catch the humour of the previous one, changes it and throws it on. Peter Cook, who is Spike Milligan's only rival as the outstanding comic genius of the age, 
as a schoolboy, sent a script to the BBC good enough for Milligan to invite him up to London for lunch. In turn, the generation of comedians who created Monty Python's Flying Circus were transfixed by Cook and his friends. But the origins of the comedy keep changing. The real difference between Milligan and Seacombe, and indeed many other war-trained comedians making names for themselves in post-war London, and the next lot, was public school. Had R.A. Butler acted on his original instinct and broken down the ancient class divide in British education, the country's humour would have been very different. By the 1960s, the flow of lower middle class and working class children through grammar schools and into the universities was strongly affecting the atmosphere of the whole country. But in the decade after the war, the private schools still dominated things. They were often bleak institutions. The austerity years meant little heating, poor food and few modern facilities, a life decorated by brutal customs and petty hierarchies, often dating back to the reign of Queen Victoria. Peter Cook's school, Radley in Oxfordshire, deployed a private vocabulary, frequent beatings, cold showers, complicated rules about which buttons which boys were allowed to do up, compulsory star jumps, thumpings with hockey sticks for minor transgressions, and, of course, a great deal of bullying, undeterred by the staff. This forced bright but vulnerable children like Cook to develop mimicry and mockery to deflect bullies, which in his case included the England cricket captain-to-be, Ted Dexter. Cook's biographer, Harry Thompson, himself a noted comic, quoted Cook explaining how he would make people laugh in order that they would not hit him. Thompson asked, How many times over the years has the British comedy industry had cause to be grateful to generations of public school bullies? Richard Ingrams, editor of Private Eye, cut his comic teeth at Shrewsbury School, sitting high above the River Severn, and at least as weird as Radley. Its new boys were called Dools, after the Greek for slave. Its day started with cold baths. It, too, had a Byzantine dress code, involving different colours of scarf, tie and waistcoat, buttons done up or not, and the rest. When the whole school was sent on cross-country runs, the boys were chased by men with whips. Ingrams's humour was less about mimicry. Instead, he, Paul Foote and Willie Rushton, who would join him at Private High, turned to writing mock school magazines. At Radley and Shrewsbury, as in scores of other similar schools, such as John Cleese's Clifton College in Bristol, or indeed Prince Charles's Gordonston in Scotland, boys developed underground languages to cope with their aggressive and closed communities. They knew little of women, which meant the humour that emerged from this was often toe-curlingly juvenile about sex. They were rarely politically radical. They were from a privileged elite, after all. Cook's father had been a colonial civil servant in Nigeria and Gibraltar. Ingrams was the son of an eccentric banker and intelligence agent, a one-time member of the pro-Nazi Anglo-German Fellowship Society, and a Catholic mother whose father had been Queen Victoria's doctor. Both men were brought up to look down on the working classes as essentially inferior and comic, though Ingrams would have his perspective shifted as a soldier during the Korean War. Their satire would be biting, with underlying layers of anger and hurt, but it would be very public schoolboyish too, tittering and often snobby. The brightest then went on to Cambridge or Oxford, still then mostly male societies and where, in those days, there was a direct line from the world of Oxbridge student reviews to the West End. 
Future satirists mingled with fellow students who would go on to become politicians and business leaders. Thompson points out that this too would affect the style of comedy soon to sweep middle-class Britain. Peter Cook's generation at Cambridge in 1957 would include the later Conservative cabinet ministers Michael Howard, Kenneth Clark, and Leon Britton, as well as numerous actors and impresarios. One reason that Oxbridge has traditionally produced so many political satirists is that its undergraduates come face to face with their future political leaders at an early age, and realise then quite how many of them are social retards who join debating societies in order to find friends. Though, in fairness, it should be added that the same can apply to those joining student theatre companies and satirical magazines. At Cambridge, Cook simply transferred his monotone sketches about the Radley School butler. To the new environment, and eventually had half the undergraduates mimicking him and repeating his one-liners. Sometimes comic success is just a voice. Cook found his voice as a schoolboy and essentially never lost it. The same deadpan, pathetic philosophy swept from public school to Cambridge to Edinburgh's Beyond the Fringe Review to London, New York, and immortality. Ingrams and Rushton similarly transferred their jokes and cartoon characters from a school magazine to a student one, and then, with others, to private eye. Around these people were many others from different backgrounds who would become just as important in the story of British comedy: Alan Bennett, the Yorkshire grammar school boy; Dudley Moore, the working-class boy from Dagenham; David Frost, the Methodist preacher's son from Kent. But the dominant personalities of Cook and Ingrams gave them a particular hold over the satire boom. The day when the traditional establishment decided it had to acknowledge its critical cousin, the comedy establishment, was the 28th of February, 1962. The Queen visited beyond the fringe in London's Fortune Theatre to see the vicious caricature of her Prime Minister by Peter Cook. Cook had done his Macmillan at Cambridge and at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe already. In London, he had been playing to packed houses since the previous May. There had been protests and walkouts by people outraged at seeing the Queen's first minister lampooned in public, but the Queen herself roared with laughter. After this, Macmillan, determined to show he was a good sport and could take a joke, decided to go along too. This was a mistake. Other Tory cabinet ministers had seen it already, but when the Prime Minister arrived. Cook spotted him in the audience and deviated from his script. In an Edwardian drawl, he told Macmillan, "When I have a spare evening, there's nothing I like better than to wander over to a theatre and sit there listening to a group of sappy, urgent, vibrant young satirists with a stupid great grin spread all over my silly old face." The crueler the political comedy, the greater its success. Shortly afterwards, Cook opened the briefly famous Establishment Club in Soho as the capital of the new satire movement. Every night, comedy and music would be offered, along with trendy new foods and a bar. It was mobbed, and its membership included much of the old establishment. Everybody, it seemed, wanted a part of the new comedy, including some who weren't very funny themselves. A spin-off review, where David Frost was doing his own version of Cook's Macmillan, was visited by the gangsters of the moment, the Cray twins. A few months after the Queen's visit, Cook bought the fledgling Private Eye too, where Richard Ingrams would soon become editor. The BBC was just holding its breath to see whether the satire boom could survive on screen, with "That was the week that was" again compared by Frost. 
It ran for a short season until hurriedly taken off the air as the 1964 election approached. For a short time it seemed that a small bunch of university comics had created a republic of laughter strong enough to change the country. This was an illusion, never shared by the key players themselves. Cook had had the idea for his club many years earlier visiting West Germany and would refer wryly to the great tradition of those satirical clubs of the 1930s that had done so much to prevent the rise of Adolf Hitler. He said different things at different times about Macmillan and the Tories. Right-wing friends tended to think he was right-wing, and socialists thought he was one of theirs, but if Peter Cook had any politics, they were never consistent, and always took second place to a good punchline. Richard Ingrams was certainly no socialist. His independent-minded Tory radicalism allowed him to flay party placemen from all sides, and he was compared to that great 19th-century radical Tory, William Cobbett. Harold Wilson, observing with delight the satirical onslaught on Macmillan and Alec Douglas Hume, later tried to ingratiate himself with Private Eye when he became Prime Minister, inviting Ingrams to Downing Street and professing himself a great admirer of satire. His reward was to become one of the magazine's most loathed and aggressively pursued targets as the Labour years rolled on. There were politically-minded people at the edges of the satire movement of the early 60s, many of them radicalised by C&D and on the left of the Labour Party. Fluck and Law, who would go on to create the latex puppetry of Spitting Image, were socialist friends of Peter Cook's. Richard Ingram's closest friend was probably Paul Foote, nephew of the Labour politician Michael Foote, who became a leading light in the Socialist Workers' Party and a fine investigative journalist. But there was no organic link between the left of British politics and the wave of comedians, mimics and journalists who tore down the facade of Tory Britain 15 years after the war. There could not have been. Too many of the satirists were public schoolboys, getting their own back on the nation's authority figures just as they tried to get their own back on schoolmasters and bullies. Macmillan was for them, in essence, just the head of a decaying prep school. Labour was full of lower middle class and working class people with their funny accents and limited little lives. If there was any alliance, it was very short and entirely one of convenience. Conclusion A country of cliques is over. The story of Britain in the years after the fall of Attlee's New Jerusalem and before the 60s really began to swing is the story of a country still run by cliques and in-groups, rather than by visionary individuals, still less the masses. Understand the networks, the clubs, and the personal associations, and you will understand the system. For the Tories, public school and Oxbridge links, even family ones, had provided the fuse-box of power. Post-war growth had given clique politics a good run. But this Britain eventually failed. It failed over Suez, over the growing signs of economic failure, in its late attempt to copy French central planning, and in its inability to grasp the new culture and society growing up all around it. The symbols of that failure were the spy scandals, the Profumo affair, and the rising froth of satirical laughter. Macmillan had finished it off, bloodily, on the Night of the Long Knives. Before this act of almost domestic butchery, there was still a notion that the chaps at the turf club, the old families with their stalking and salmon rivers, that web of old Etonian cronies, 
could maintain British authority and self-confidence despite the local difficulties of a disintegrating empire and a weak economy, that they could hang together. Patently, they could not. The final stage in the collapse of the old authority came with Macmillan's illness and resignation, and the stitch-up which eventually put the bony, amiable, slightly bemused Lord Hume of the Hursel into number ten as the fourth Tory Prime Minister in a row. Much of British politics still came down to class, which threw up many ironies. In this case, it was the long, ultimately successful legal fight by a Labour left-winger, Lord Stanskate, better known as Anthony Wedgwood Ben, better known still as Tony Ben, to disclaim or throw off his peerage. His success in court electrified the Tory struggle. There were Tories in the Commons who were popular candidates to replace Macmillan, above all Rab Butler. Yet the new ability to fling off a coronet and become a commoner, and thus possibly an MP in the Commons, meant two other prominent Conservatives could now take part in the race. One was Lord Hailsham, a clever, popular, but ultimately rather undignified man favoured by Macmillan. The other was Lord Hume. Macmillan was far less ill than he thought, but the news that he would go turned the Tory conference of October 1963, normally a placid and deferential gathering, into wild and hysterical seaside hustings. Lord Hailsham made it clear he would renounce his peerage, but then discredited himself with a display of crude and exhibitionistic self-promotion. Macmillan quickly dropped him as favourite, some suggest because he did not want a successor who would be there for long, just in case he could manage a comeback. Rab Butler made a poor speech, leading some to wonder if he really wanted to be Prime Minister. He was a great mind, and much admired by the brighter Tories, but he lacked the slightest evidence of killer instinct. Enoch Powell, one of his supporters, said they had put the gun in his hands, but he refused to fire it. Macmillan coldly dismissed him as lacking the last six inches of steel. Up in London, Macmillan was still ill in bed and arranged for the various grandees of the party to take soundings among the MPs, party workers, peers and constituency chairmen. This highly unscientific survey produced Lord Hume's name, and he was duly proposed by Macmillan, invited by the Queen, accepted, renounced his peerage, won a by-election in a then-tame Scottish Tory constituency, and duly entered number ten. Fast work, my lord. Widely liked but self-effacing, Lord Hume, Macmillan's foreign secretary, had a political career which led right back to the Chamberlain government and the Munich appeasement of Hitler. This did not and should not have counted against him entirely. Butler had also been an appeaser. So had, for a while, Hailsham. Indeed, so had most of the Tory party at the time. But Hume seemed utterly against the spirit of the new decade. He was the ultimate Grousemore Tory, but without Macmillan's wily toughness. Not just a toff, but worse, a nice toff. The idea outraged many Tories, notably Hailsham and the Liberal Ian MacLeod. Powell was equally livid, and both men refused to serve under Hume, who was described by press commentators at the time as a cretin and this half-witted earl. In a famous article in The Spectator, Ian MacLeod, as editor, attacked the choice as a stitch-up by the Conservative Party's magic circle. 
He narrated the key soundings involving Macmillan and functionaries such as Lords Dilhorn, Poole, and St. Aldwyn, pointing out in a devastating aside, eight of the nine men mentioned in the last sentence went to Eton. As it happened, Alec Douglas Hume went on to be a tougher opponent than Harold Wilson had expected. An Etonian schoolboy contemporary, the writer Cyril Connolly, had described the new Prime Minister as the kind of graceful, tolerant, sleepy boy who is showered with favours and crowned with all the laurels. In the 18th century he would have become Prime Minister before he was 30. As it was, he appeared honourably ineligible for the struggle for life. Hume proved Connolly wrong, at least in getting to the Premier position and in being ready to fight for it. Later he would return as Heath's Foreign Secretary in 1970-74, to 74, and lived long to be a much-liked grand old man of Toryism. Yet he never overcame the handicap of being a symbol of the old ways. As Prime Minister in the early 60s he was out of time and immaculately turned out anachronism. Macmillan unwittingly pointed this out in a draft of his resignation letter to the Queen, in which he cheerfully described Hume as clearly a man who represents the old governing class at its best. By 1964, that class was bust. Wilson put it well. We are living in the jet age, but we are governed by an Edwardian establishment mentality. Though in theory opposed to this fusty, clique-ridden world, Behind the clothing and language, Labour leaders were not quite as different as they liked to appear. That party, too, was a cluster of competing clubs and networks, whose own connections to business were chance friendships which would later cause much embarrassment. The trade unions were still mostly in the hands of the old right-wing leaders who manipulated and wire-pulled to stay in office. Whitehall was run by a tiny elite of clubmen, the hyper-educated classicists from Oxbridge in their striped trousers and stiff collars, who knew they were cleverer than any elite anywhere else. The Liberals, under their charismatic leader Joe Grimmond, stood outside the inner clubs of fifties power, which was no doubt why they began to have some spectacular by-election successes towards the end of the Tory years, particularly in Cornwall, Wales and Scotland. They were seen as somehow modern and classless, though, in fact, Grimmond was another old Etonian who was intertwined in the once grand family alliances of strangely dead liberal England. In Scotland and Wales, the nationalist parties were just beginning to challenge the paternalists. But when Anthony Sampson published Anatomy of Britain, he had illustrated it with a sprawling diagram of intersecting circles to show the closed and nepotistic systems under which the country was organised. It was probably the most influential piece of journalism of his long career, and as potent in its way as the coining of the word establishment by another journalist, Henry Fairley, at around the same time. Of course, all advanced societies have establishments. France swapped her great Catholic families for the intellectual elites of the de Gaulle era. German industrialists cooperated cosily together in their assault on world markets. Even the United States has its Ivy League colleges and grand families interlinked from Wall Street to Washington. But in democracies, elites require prestige to survive. They need to have spread their successes widely enough to retain authority. The British elites of the early 60s failed this test. Despite the new tycoons and the cluster of truly innovative big companies, 
Britain's output was growing far more slowly than other comparable countries, and her share of world markets was shrivelling at a terrifying speed. Despite outside shocks from Indian independence to Suez, from the sterling crises and the failure of weapons systems, to France's rejection of her application for common market membership, the country had made no radical change of direction. Privately, civil servants and politicians acknowledged that there were profound problems and agonised about what should be done. Publicly, under Macmillan and Douglas Hume, there was a complacent front of self-congratulation and business as usual. Was this because we had been happier than other nations in our age of lost content? No revolution, invasion or wartime defeat had shaken the British as they acquired their new cars and explored their new supermarkets. British political scandals were a branch of light entertainment compared to the darker struggles convulsing Italy, France or Eastern Europe. And when Britain finally made a change, it turned out to be a surprisingly modest and ineffective one. Outside politics and the economy, a new country was breaking through, brightly coloured, fashionable, less masculine. For a brief flicker, it seemed to be matched by the arrival of a new government too. An alternative assessment came from Crossman as he contemplated the funeral gathering for St Winston Churchill in Westminster Hall at the end of January 1965. But oh, what a faded, declining establishment surrounded me. Aged marshals, grey, dreary ladies, decadent Marlboroughs and Churchills. It was a dying congregation gathered there, and I am afraid the Labour cabinet didn't look too distinguished either. It felt like the end of an epoch, possibly even the end of a nation. Part 3. Harold, Ted and Jim. When the modern failed. The thirteen years of Tory rule, wasted, according to Harold Wilson, were followed by fifteen years when modern Britain rose and failed. Modern does not simply mean the look and shape of the country formed during 1964 to 1979, most of which is still here around us, essentially unaltered. The motorways and mass car economy, the concrete architecture, the rock music, the high street chains. It also means a belief in planning and management. This was the time of practical men, educated in grammar schools, sure of their intelligence, rolling up their sleeves and taking no nonsense. They were going to scrap the old and fusty, whether that meant the huge Victorian railway network, the grand Edwardian government palazzos in Whitehall, the historic regiments, terraced housing, hanging, theatre censorship, the prohibitions on homosexual behaviour and abortion, the ancient coinage and the quaint county names. Bigger, in general, would be better. Huge, comprehensive schools would be more efficient than the maze of selective and rubbish-dump academies. The many hundreds of trade unions would resolve themselves into a few leviathans, known only by their initials. Small companies would wither and combine, and ever larger corporations would arise in their place, ruthless and managed on the latest scientific American lines. Britain herself would cease to be a small, independent trader and would merge into the largest corporation then available, the European Community. 
This was managerial self-confidence, which would be smashed to pieces during the seventies and never recover. Just seven men dominate the politics of these thirteen years. They are the three prime ministers: Harold Wilson, Edward Heath, and James Callaghan. Two other Labour politicians, so important they stand alongside the premiers, Roy Jenkins and Dennis Healy, and two men who stood increasingly outside the management consensus, leading attacks on it from right and left: Enoch Powell and Anthony Wedgwood Ben. All have appeared briefly in this history already, but these were the years when they truly mattered. Of the five insiders, none was born into remotely rich or powerful families. Four of them—Wilson, Heath, Jenkins, and Healy—were grammar school boys who had elbowed their way to an elite university education. The fifth, Jim Callahan, had a rougher start. All of them had served in the armed forces during the war, except for Wilson, who had been a civil servant. All were exceptionally clever men of wide experience, brimming with the energetic certainty of those trained to hold power, not merely born to the role. Though they had many differences of outlook, in broad terms they could agree that Marxism destroyed freedom, and that the discredited liberal free market brought chaos and unfairness. For them. Enlightened state management was the last big idea left standing. So these were men more abrasive and less interested in pleasing the media than later more nervous politicians. They were hurrying men, prepared to be rude, particularly to each other. Their language was blunt in private, sometimes in public. Heath would denounce the unacceptable face of capitalism, and Healy would promise to make the richest in the land howl with anguish. In one important way, these men did represent the Britain of their time. These were years of increased social mobility. The country was full of little Harolds and lesser Teds, bright men and women from lower middle class or working class families who were rising fast through business, universities, and the professions, who hugely admired such leaders. When Wilson talked of the scientific revolution that would transform Britain, his audience included tens of thousands of managers and engineers in their off-the-peg tweed jackets and flannel trousers. When Heath promised that Europe would open up great new vistas for British industry, boardrooms and offices contained impatient, self-made people ready to get cracking. Callaghan's beefy working-class patriotism and conservative instincts were shared by millions of Labour voters, pro-trade union but staunchly monarchical. But in other ways, they were already out of date. In the sixties and seventies, Britain was becoming a more feminised, sexualised, rebellious, and consumption-addicted society. The political class was cut off from this by their age. They would rely on their children to keep them a little in touch. They might manage eventually a brownish kipper tie or daringly wider lapels on their suits, but they looked and sounded what they were—people from a more conservative and formal time. For the vast majority, the early sixties were experienced as a continuation of the fifties. Britain remained an industrial society and apparently a world power, whose future was believed to depend on factories churning out cars, engines, washing machines, and electrical goods for export, and whose major cities were relics of the industrial revolution. 
Authority figures, police, teachers, judges, and above all parents, were still clothed in the semi-military sense of order that derived from wartime experience. They were the butt of widespread mockery in Alan Bennett's early plays, in newspaper cartoons by Giles of the Daily Express, in television sketches by John Cleese and David Frost, or in film comedies about bus drivers and diplomats. The cross-looking men with moustaches and short back and sides were losing ground, but they were visibly still in power. Little islands of change were all around. Immigration was changing small patches of the country. The textile towns of Yorkshire and parts of West London, though it had barely impinged on most people's lives, there was a growing snappiness and lightness of design in everything from clothes to the shape of cars, an aesthetic escape from the seriousness of the immediate post-war period, which took different form year by year, but was experienced as a continuum, not a revolution. For some, the country was just becoming more childish and less dignified. The refined, highbrow, purist modernism born among Europe's intellectuals before the war had had its last throw. Benjamin Britten's musical austerities, Eliot's Anglo-Catholic seriousness, and the formal stillness of the sculpture of Barbara Hepworth were falling from fashion. Classical music was receding before the ear-splitting tidal advance of rock and pop, driven by radio. In poetry, politics and incantation were returning. In painting, pop art and the pleasure principle were on the attack. Though it is a huge generalization, it can fairly be argued that simpler and more digestible art forms, suitable for mass market consumption, were replacing elite art, which assumed an educated and concentrated viewer, listener, or reader. Throughout these years, there would be self-conscious moves to create new elites to keep the masses out. There always are. They might come from the portentous theories of modern art, or the avowedly difficult atonal music arriving from France and America, but these would be eddies against the stream, tiny whirlpools in the metropolis or at universities. The general move was for easier, brighter, sweeter stuff. The two great rebels mentioned earlier, Enoch Powell and Tony Benn, were neither easier nor sweeter. They had shared much with the five insiders, and indeed would remain insiders through part of this era. Powell, until he was finally expelled from the Tory shadow cabinet for his anti-immigration speech of 1968, and Ben, until his increasing radicalism made him the silly socialist Satan of the later 70s. They both rejected the consumer society growing around them in favour of a higher vision. Powell's was a romantic dream of an older, tougher, swashbuckling England, free of continental and imperial entanglements, populated by spiky, ingenious, hard-working, and white people rather like himself. Ben's was of a socialist commonwealth, equal, republican, dominated by scientifically-minded people thinking everything through from first principles, rather as he saw himself. Both visions required British independence. A self-sufficient island, which ran entirely against the great forces of the time, both were fundamentally nostalgic. If Powell harked back to the energetic Victorians, Ben dreamed of Puritan revolutionaries. Both drew sustenance from people around them who seemed to be excluded from mainstream politics. 
For Powell, it was the Wolverhampton constituents who had immigration imposed on them, and the small shopkeepers drowning under red tape and taxes. For Ben, it was the radical shop stewards' committees on the Clyde or in Midlands factories, and his children's generation protesting against Vietnam. In return, viewed from Fleet Street or the pulpits of broadcasting, each man was seen as an irrelevance, marching off to nowhere. Yet, Powell was the prophet after whom Margaret Thatcher would stride into power, while Ben represented a militant leftism which very nearly seized control of the Labour Party itself. The Little Spherical Thing no period of British parliamentary history has been as well and copiously described by those who were there as have the Wilson administrations of 1964 to 1970. Two of the key ministers, Roy Jenkins and Dennis Healy, wrote autobiographies which rank as the finest such books ever. The governments contained three diarists of superb quality and rare descriptive honesty. Richard Crossman blew the lid off cabinet confidentiality. Barbara Castle was the most effective female politician in Labour history. Ben's diaries are simply unparalleled descriptions of the age. Wilson himself was no great writer. He nevertheless produced a monumental tome on the governments which sets out his side of the story in wearisome detail. James Callaghan did the same. Two of the best biographies in modern politics by Ben Pimlot and Philip Ziegler were devoted to Wilson. Other very fine accounts of the time include biographies of all the key players, as well as a small bookshelf of further memoirs by aides, press officers, lawyers, newspapermen, diplomats and backbenchers. There is also a large literature devoted to the various theories about whether Wilson was a Soviet spy and whether MI5 agents and assorted extremists really tried to remove him from office. As a result, we know more about what individual ministers were thinking and doing and more about their internal feuds with officials and each other than is the case for any previous government. Among later ones, only the Thatcher years have been as carefully chronicled, though its diarists were never top rankers. Yet the figure bobbing at the centre of this oceanic ebb and flow of words remains strangely obscure. It was said of Stalin during his rise through the Soviet power game that he was a grey blur. Wilson, too, can seem a grey blur, moving from a stolid lower-middle-class boyhood in Huddersfield, where his main enthusiasms were school learning and the Boy Scouts, through a quiet, fact-grinding career at Oxford, winning prizes but keeping well clear of the politically glamorous set, until he became an academic economist and wartime civil servant. In letters and contemporary descriptions, he comes over as doughy, cautious, priggish, immensely able but not likeable. Early in his career, he was used by others, from Beveridge to Cripps and Dalton, as a superior office boy, there to gather the figures, marshal the arguments and snib the door each evening. He was old young, growing a moustache in his twenties in order to look more mature, and living in bulging suits with his famous pipe. Yet, as we have seen, he was rarely trusted. An early piece of exaggeration, when he claimed to have gone to school with children too poor to afford shoes, which was untrue, and exposed as untrue, gave him a public reputation for slipperiness. When he resigned with Bevan in 1951, many people saw this as a piece of pure opportunism. He could see Attlee was finished, and thought the party would shift to the left. He was disparaged as Nye's little dog, but his resignation speech was shrewd enough to leave the door open to a cabinet return. 
Then, having infuriated the right, he infuriated the left-wing, Bevanites, by waltzing back into a position very quickly. Later, pressed by the left to stand against Gateskill, he was overcome with fear. The diarist Crossman recorded, They all bullied Harold, and threatened him, and pushed at him, and tugged at him, and the little spherical thing kept twirling round in dismay. In Labour's internal feuds he ratted, then re-ratted, then ratted again. In the early sixties he was a lonely figure at Westminster. The Labour right loathed him. The left merely despised him. Yet his sheer ability with numbers and increasingly with words kept him always in contention. When Gateskill died suddenly, the left, without Bevan, had no other candidate than Wilson. Sir Alec Douglas Hume became Prime Minister because Harold Macmillan was ill and conspiratorial. Harold Wilson became Labour leader because George Brown was a drunk and not nearly conspiratorial enough. Brown had assumed he would succeed, as Browns do. He was a richly talented working-class man, a lorry driver's son from South London, who rose through the trade union movement and entered Parliament in the Attlee landslide of 1945. With huge black eyebrows, a round red face, charm, and a killer glare, he established himself as a forthright and at times brilliant speaker and an able young minister. He could be famously rude, but also delightful and winning, and when Gateskill died was the obvious person to take over, at least from the point of view of the right and centre of the party. The trouble, as Tony Crossland put it, was that Brown was also a neurotic drunk. The party's choice, he went on, was now between a crook and a drunk. Brown's drinking was heavy and his personality mercurial. Later, his rants and self-pitying outbursts, his sudden disappearances, heroic sulks and astonishingly regular threats to resign from the Labour government would become legendary. A typical story about him, probably apocryphal, has him attending an official reception in Peru and, very inebriated, approaching a willowy figure in scarlet for a dance. Brown is repulsed and protests grandly that he is Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs. Why could he not have a nice dance? The reply comes, for three reasons, Mr. Brown. First, because you are disgustingly drunk. Second, because that music is not a dance, but our national anthem and third because I am the Cardinal Archbishop of Lima. The story at least demonstrates why Brown's reputation would entertain, as well as appall, the Westminster village. Yet the drunk might well have beaten the crook had not James Callaghan decided to stand as well. He had been encouraged by Wilson's team, so splitting the anti-Wilson vote and losing Brown vital momentum. In the end, Wilson won easily by the votes of 144 Labour MPs to Brown's 103. These were the days before trade unions or party activists were allowed a say. Having won, Wilson's reputation soared in a way which today seems hard to explain. All his weaving, double-crossing, opportunism and deceptions were now forgiven, or at any rate, forgotten. The press hailed him as a youthful master of his craft, a devastatingly witty speaker, man of the hour. Wilson's speeches had certainly improved immensely, and he was an acknowledged maestro of the put-down and witty aside, essential in an age of open meetings and hecklers. He developed an acid line of attack on the easy targets of Macmillan and then Douglas Hume, and was full of vague but inspiring-sounding thoughts, such as, The Labour movement is a crusade, or it is nothing and we need men with fire in their belly and humanity in their heart.
Yet his political thinking, as distinct from his political tactics, was stodgily conventional. He thought Britain was badly run and old-fashioned, but believed more central planning, preferably by grammar school-educated technocrats like himself, would solve the problem. He was hardly young, an old-looking forty-six, whose image was comfortingly respectable. He harped on about preferring beer to champagne, tinned salmon to smoked salmon, HP sauce to any other sauce, and being a quiet provincial sort. He seemed prudish about sex, still the Methodist Boy Scout at heart, and in many ways out of kilter with the fashionable, risk-taking, youthful Britain all around him. So why did he seem so good? Partly it was a simple matter of class. He might send his children to private schools and live in Hampstead, but Wilson came across as a simple and ordinary man, a breath of fresh air compared to the old Etonians whose fumbling rule was ending. He was the political equivalent to the men breaking through elsewhere in public life. The tweed-jacketed lecturers of Kingsley Amis novels, or David Frost with his nasal vowels on television, or Richard Hoggett, the plain-speaking lecturer called at the Lady Chatterley trial. He lacked deference. His calm impertinence delighted millions. Here, in a world still run by the old lot, was a clever new man who took it for granted that he was better than the old lot. In Frost's off-the-cuff summation, it was smart Alec against dull Alec. Of course, Wilson was not really any kind of outsider in politics. As an old Whitehall hand who had worked in the cabinet office and with Beveridge, who had visited Moscow and Washington for complex trade and business talks, he was formidably experienced by the time he took office, simply a different brand of insider. Yet he turned this to his advantage too. Britain had been going through a time of self-doubt, partly because of the seedy revelations of the Profumo affair and fears of moral decay among the old ruling class, but more importantly because of economic decline. Wilson's propaganda triumph was to bring the two themes together. The country needed to sweep away privilege and cobwebbed aristocracy and replace it with ruthless and purposive modern planning. Faced with the choice between socialists of the far-left variety and the capitalist toffs, Wilson found a third way that would have appealed to Tony Blair thirty years later. It sounded unanswerable, exciting, yet vague. It was science. In his speech to Labour's 1963 conference, the most famous he ever made, Wilson promised a scientific revolution which would require wholesale social change. The Britain that is going to be forged in the white heat of this revolution will be no place for restrictive practices or for outdated methods. Those charged with the control of our affairs must be ready to think and speak in the language of our scientific age. It was a time, after Sputnik, when the awesome power of communist Russian science mesmerized and terrified the West. Wilson said he had studied the formidable Soviet challenge in the education of scientists and technologists and, above all, in the ruthless application of scientific techniques in Soviet industry. As a Democrat, he rejected their methods, but we must use all the resources of democratic planning, all the latent and undeveloped energies and skills of our people to ensure Britain's standing in the world. If one removes the archaic fear of Soviet power and replaces it with the contemporary fear of the rising economies of China and India, then Wilson's rhetoric, with its emphasis on wasted and undereducated skills, is strikingly similar to the language of new labour in the 21st century. End of Disc 9